would you do if you were a scholar or say a librarian and you had in your collection a book that made a joke of everything you loved. You had a book that ridiculed the very foundations of the truth that you lived by, that, that made mockery of all of the skills that you had developed in understanding and philosophy and the creation of beauty. What would you do if you had that book tonight in the Mosaic Ark? We read that book. Welcome, welcome everyone. I have, I have, I realize I can't wear my headphones tonight because Kilts is not here and I don't have Patrick and I don't have Casey. I am like Adso talking to myself over the centuries. Well, <laughs> anyway, um, I thank you all for showing up tonight. I'm sorry I couldn't do it last night, but I did, I did use my time with my um, headache well last night because I watched the rest of the movie. So I am, I am all primed, I am all primed to tell you why it is sinful to laugh. No, wait. Okay, so here in Unauthorized, I mean, I, I know, I, I, I hope, I hope a number of you enjoyed this um, episode because it's one of, the name of the rose, Umberto Echo's The Name of the Rose, is one of the books that everybody in our community really likes talking about. I mean, it's, I, I, I am, of course, jealous of, of Vox for getting to meet Echo because he's loomed in my intellectual life very large for, for my entire professional career. And it would have been interesting to meet him and talk to him. Um, but I, I think one of the reasons I got that terrible headache yesterday and I got like kind of cold, well, I wasn't going to stare into a light for, you know, hours and hours talking to you about a book. Um, I, that caught fire. I, I realized it's maybe not exactly the book I remember reading, except for horribly enough. I really, really remember this book extremely well. Now, intriguingly, intriguingly, I, I did read The Name of the Rose 
pretty much when it came out in paperback in the United States. It's, it was published in Italian in 1980, and the English translation by William Weaver came out in 1983. And I know I have a paperback. I, I, I have some pictures, right? It's like I, I know I have a paperback with this cover. Except I can't find it. <laughs> like, how appropriate is that? It's, I know I have a copy of The Name of the Rose, which I read in college. Um, I would like to find it because there, there are usually marks in my books that indicate um, whether I bought them in college or whether I bought them in my first years in graduate school. And I can't quite remember because the movie came out in 1986. And I, am, I, I know there's one marker I absolutely definitely have. For when I read this book, which is that I, to my everlasting shame and 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 terror and horror and chagrin and embarrassment and and all of those things, talked about it in my application to graduate school <laughs> that I wrote in. Okay, well, is it 1987 or 1988? 19, it would have been. I would have been at least writing it in 1987 because I started graduate school. I was in Cambridge from 1986 to 1988. And then I transferred, as it were, my studies from Cambridge, England to New York City um, to go work with the um, a professor that I wanted to be my dissertation advisor in, in New York. And I know that I wrote about the name of the rose in my personal statement for my graduate school application. And I I'd say I probably have it somewhere in an archive. I I I know I would have never thrown it away because I archive everything. Yes, I have screenshots. No, but the thing is, I can't have a screenshot of this particular document that I wrote in 1987. I must have I must have handwritten it out in ink and then had to type it on the Olivetti that we had appropriately. The one like computer that the graduate students in, in my college in Cambridge had access to it. So I must have typed it out and printed it and something like that. And maybe I have a printed version of it. But the thing is, I remember it to my embarrassment, of course, because I was so enthusiastic in my graduate school personal statement. I I have no idea why they let me in. And I, th I think maybe that's like normal for graduate students, you don't really know why your personal statement worked in the context that it did with the other personal statements that the admissions committee was reading. But I did get into Columbia and I did get to work with Professor Bynum. But I don't think my telling them about how enthusiastically I enjoyed the name of the rose had anything to do with it. <laughs> they never told me. It's, it's too embarrassing. And and the thing is, what I'm re remembering with the my my 40 years later embarrassment how long ago is that? Yes, 40. Um, is I thought that what I needed to do to get into graduate school to study medieval semiotics, because I was working on medieval semiotics. I was working on a study of commentaries on the Song of Songs. I've told you all about that before. I was working on commentaries on the Song of Songs in praise of the Virgin Mary. And so I was very into the problems of scriptural exegesis and layers of meaning and I was already getting the glimpses of what you know that meant in postmodernism with Bart and this you know, multiple senses of scripture and such like that although I cannot pretend that I knew it as well as I can tell you about it now but I was in the moment right we were in the moment of talking about the significance of layers and meanings and such like that and I think I said some of that in my personal statement, too, because I talked about my work on William of Newborough, not William of Baskerville, but William of Newborough. And 
but I was saying how much I wanted because of the way the name of the rose portrayed the Middle Ages to, you know, be inside that story to, to study it. Well, like I said, I, I don't know whether claiming that in 1987, a year after the movie came out with Sean Connery and Christian Slater, who was 18 at the time, he hadn't come out in Heathers yet. I remember we watched Heathers the next year. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what my professors thought about The Name of the Rose, and I'm still not sure, one, because I've never asked them, but two, in prepping for this stream and recognizing, all right, I'm the medievalist here on unauthorized TV. Yes, I am. Okay. It checks notes, right? Yeah, I'm the medievalist with the PhD in medieval history, in history, in semiotics, in scriptural exegesis, in, in textual commentary, and manuscript studies, and all of that, right? I'm the I'm the expert here. I better be able to do this really well, right? And in order to prep for this stream, I went and, oh dear, my dog has the the treat ball that is going to be in the background i'm going to have to get the treat ball away from the dog otherwise that that is going to be enormously noisy it's a new toy for him okay the dog has a ball this is all going to be topical and significant in Draco Chemicus Act 2, but that's not relevant to right now. Okay, so in prepping for this stream and knowing I'm the expert and therefore I'm, I'm expected to say expert level things about this text, I went and looked in this database that we have of medieval scholarship. It's the International Medieval Bibliography and it's been running now since the, the 70s. They, they put it online sometime after I was in graduate school. So in the aughts, maybe it's incredibly easy to search. It's got references from all of the major um, journals and edited collections and things like that in medieval studies in all the languages. It's like Western, Eastern European, Japanese, so forth. So it's it's the first go-to place we go for if you want to find out what you know people are talking about in in the field. And I simply assumed, because medievalism is one of the things that gets put in that rubric, that there would be lots and lots and lots of scholarship on Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, since it was the book. I mean, I didn't admit to Tolkien, I think, in my, in my graduate school application. I was, you know, felt more confident in talking about The Name of the Rose. It was the book that inspired me to go into medieval studies, right? Surely, surely you would say, Professor Fulton Brown. I mean, I'm Dr. Fulton, but Professor Fulton Brown because I use my married name in the in my professional title. Anyway, if you want to know why I'm Fulton Brown. Dr. Fulton, wouldn't you expect there to be lots and lots and lots of conversation about the name of the rose as an evidence of the effect of thinking through medieval scholarship and uh, you know, his histories and fictions and such like that in the effect of the way in which people study. No, there's nothing. There's like a handful of studies. I mean, I think I found like three. There was one very good one on maps and labyrinths and mazes and stuff like that, which has been useful for tonight's preparation. But I was surprised. I mean, there's lots of scholarship on things like 
oh, I don't know, I was looking at um, Eric Rome, Rome's um, Percival a few weeks ago, and there's you know decent amount of scholarship on his film, on the Chrétien de Trois Percival. I really thought there would be far more in the database on The Name of the Rose, and there was almost nothing. Which surprised me. Yes, which surprised me. And, you know, this is out of all proportion to the popularity of the book itself. I, I read in the online data that I was able to surf around in the last few days. The book sold 50 million copies. You'd think. <laughs> in the International Medieval Bibliography Database, there'd be more than a dozen or so references to studies that talk about the importance of the book in ideas about the Middle Ages, right? It, it's, it's, it's actually quite interesting and astonishing. Now, on the other hand, and, and then I saw, I, I, you know, searched on the name of the rose. I should have found Echo. Um, Echo has a few more um, entries in the, in the database. He's, um, but he's not in fact a medievalist. Great. I, I know, I know this shocks you. I know you're surprised. Professional um, markers and status and such like that. He did get his, his degree, as it says, in medieval aesthetics and philosophy. He did a thesis on Thomas Aquinas's studies of aesthetics. But appropriately, because just as I've somehow misplaced my paperback copy of The Name of the Rose, I can't find one of his other books it's not his thesis but a book he wrote on that theme art and beauty in the middle ages i know what the cover looks like it's got a picture of the probably chantilly chateau on it and such it's i clearly they're traveling together somewhere in my library in at home i don't think they're on campus i don't know where they are so i can't prove anything except for what i remember off the top of my head um and then I realized when I did some more bibliography search, because I was saying, maybe I just haven't been paying attention to Echo, right? I know he did The Name of the Rose. I know he wrote on Thomas Aquinas and aesthetics. I read about aesthetics. That's why I have his beauty book. I have another book more recently on labyrinths um, that I want to be reading from in our prep for Act 3 and Draco Chemicus, right? So I've, I've got a lot of his imagery in my mind, and I think I just thought I hadn't been paying attention. Well, no, he's not a medievalist. Um, he was technically, in all of his many appointments and guest lecturers and, and such over his, his very glittering career, um, a professor of semiotics. All right, so he's basically the real-life hero of Dan Brown novels. Right? <laughs> that but Robert Langdon in the... the um, Da Vinci Code and, and so forth is a symbologist, a professor of symbology. Well, Umberto Eco was as close as you can get in an actual academic appointment, maybe Judith Butler in rhetoric, right, at Berkeley, but he's a you know professor of semiotics. So he's a professor of sign theory. And he started his training as a medievalist, but in that sense, he's more like all those French postmodernists, like uh, Bourdieu, and um, Bataille and Lacan, and you have to say it with the right, you know, sort of Frenchy accent because that's the way all the Americans learn to say their names. Foucault and um, Bart, Bart, right? Because you don't say Barthes, right? Who trained as medievalists, but made their reputation for their theorizing about other things. Like Bourdieu and his distinctions was very important in 
um, inventing the idea of social capital, which may come into this this stream. I, 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 I've been talking on Social Galactic about some of these things elusively and, and furiously when we got into that long and very interesting thread on copyright and leather-bound books and why people write. And I realized I was arguing with myself for a lot because I was so suddenly triggered by what right and then i realized i needed to read the name of the rose to remember like what is it that i'm 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 reacting to here some of it is of course echoes external to academia prestige which shall we say his social capital that he is someone that you recognize that you should enjoy reading because he's he's better than mark twain or walter scott as someone who uses the middle ages to make a point about now right um he's he's clearly if you're you know dive into the name of the rose you get flabbergasted and 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 titillated by all of the references to the manuscripts and the latin titles draco alchemicus no wait that one's not in the name of the rose although we do have a little video out there on my telegram that seems to suggest that president trump knew about draco alchemicus if you learn latin right you must learn latin okay so umberto echo trained as a medievalist but that's not in fact what he made his career in and that could it's possible i don't know it's possible that affects the degree to which real medievalists are willing to talk about him i mean we talk about tolkien but tolkien actually had a professorship in anglo-saxon literature right and he was he he was an anglo-saxonist c.s lewis had a professorship in English literature and wrote mainly on the 16th, on the 17th century. So is it just that Echo didn't go to the right conferences? That we didn't see him at Kalamazoo or at you know, the Medieval Academy? You won't see me there right now because they, um, they canceled, they canceled things back in 2020 and it has, it, I haven't, well, that's another story. What got burned in, in which, in which, which, um, heretics pyre at, at that point? Um, maybe we don't see Echo that much in medieval studies because he didn't play with us in the field. Possibly, but we write about a lot of things as scholars that, you know, with people that we're not necessarily in, in direct conversation with. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, And then I started thinking about, well, okay, so I can't find, I can't find my copy of The Name of the Rose. Um, I can find, I can find some related, related books though, right? So if you know anything about The Name of the Rose, you know the library is a labyrinth, and you know that the librarian is Jorge Borgos. You know that if you just, just seen the movie, because he's the blind guy who eats the book, oh, sorry, spoiler alert, and dies in the flames. Um, that being an homage to, of course, Jorge Luis Borges, and I can prove that I read Borges in, in college. I, in fact, I, I must have gotten this labyrinth um, in my very first year in college because I took a course on, you will be horrified to hear, modernist and postmodernist literature. I, I, I somehow had done well in my AP exam and I, you know, tested out freshman English. And so I first quarter, first semester, first year in, in, in college, I was 17, um, I take a course on post-modernist and post-modern I had no idea what I was getting into, <laughs> but I did enjoy reading Borges, and I, you know, especially enjoyed 
um, the story about the Library of Babel. And I do remember that I had read this before I read Name of the Rose. So these things must have gone together. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. Borges is not known as a, um, well, I don't know. It's like he's he's known as a tricksy, tricksy writer, right? He's he's up there with, well, one of the other people that the translator for the name of the rose, William Weaver, also translated, which is Atala Covino, right? These mid twentieth century, they're easier to read than Joyce, but harder to read than, I don't know, Dan Brown, um, but with the same level of you know sort of playing with reality and puzzle and storytelling and and so forth and. Therefore, you should have a clue, maybe, that if Umberto Eco, who is trained as a medievalist in Thomas Aquinas's aesthetics, but isn't actually a medievalist and spends most of his career talking about sign theory or semiotics, we're doing something here other than just making a cool introduction to why you might want to study the Middle Ages, probably. Um, the other book that I can find in my proof of like real like embeddedness in the physical world existence of my reading of Echo is of course my first edition copy of Foucault's Pendulum, right? And um, it's not the uh, I, I know from the inscription that it's it's definitely from the late eighties because um, I used to sign my books at that point. Um, copyright nineteen eighty eight. Not the actual Franklin Library first edition, because it says a signed first edition of this book has been privately printed by the Franklin Library. My my copy, um, printed in the United States of America, is a first trade edition, and it's got all the letters of the alphabet there, so A, B, C, D, E, which means, yes, it's a first edition of some level, right? And I do remember reading this book. There's echo on the back. This is good. Echo on the back. And being really furious at <laughs> it. <laughs> I've never reread it. Maybe I should go back and reread it. I'm now I'm I'm more interested in printing now, and I'd probably appreciate some of the jokes better. But I remember that it, you know, Foucault's Pendulum. If you haven't read it, sets you up with this delightful romp through, you know, the these guys in the print shop trying to find the the actual Templars conspiracy. And by the end of it, they're not sure whether their conspiracy has come true or whether they've just gone nuts. Right, so it's a. Uh, when I read Foucault's Pendulum, I it was a few years after I'd read The Name of the Rose, and so I, I was getting getting wise to the tricksiness already, I think by that time. Although I was still in graduate school, so I wasn't that smart yet. Um, when I read Foucault's Pendulum, I was just pissed off. I, I I got to the end. I wanted a story that was about finding the key. Right, you wanted a story that was taking you through this puzzle and mystery and such and by the end of it there should be some revelation of reality but that's not what happens at the end of Foucault's Pendulum people just get start dropping dead and 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 you know being chased by conspiracy conspirators and it's all horrifying and terrible and I didn't appreciate the joke and I finished it and I said this is a giant joke So Casey is suggesting maybe Echo wasn't taken seriously by medieval scholars because he was a successful fiction author. I don't think that's it, right? Because um, we do we do have people in our medievalist world who write historical fiction who do come to the conferences and are, you know, welcomed um, there quite warmly. So 
no, I don't, I don't think that's it. And I am, I am curious. I mean, I didn't read this article because it didn't seem like it was going to offer me any clues to unlocking what's going on in the name of the rose. There was an article that the blurb for it was how Echo's story has affected the use of the Middle Ages in detective fiction or something. And it's like all the, the other, you know, medievalists all read. I, when I was in graduate school, I read lots and lots and lots of both detective fiction and historical fiction. And for example, Ellis Peters' Cad File Mysteries, they go on and on. I can't remember how many there are. You you get, you know, some deeper knowledge of the first English Civil War, the 12th century one between Stephen and Matilda. And Derek Jacobi does a very nice job of playing Cadfell. And those novels, I it's like th there's 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 lots of historical novels. There's there's a whole, you know, subgenre of medievalist detective fiction. But Echo doesn't really travel in that. So you could say they're jealous of him selling 50 million copies and they don't sell that many. But it, I don't think that's it. I have, however, because I realized I needed to talk about this. I needed to wrestle with what was going on as the medievalist on unauthorized TV. And so I bought another copy. <laughs> I'm assuming. I can't prove it because I can't find my original paperback. I'm assuming it's the same book I read back in the 80s. Right, probably. We'll hope. Um, and that, therefore, reading it now as an exercise in memory, but also as an exercise of being 40 years older, I'll maybe understand what, why he's not talked about. So what is the best way to read The Name of the Rose? Well, everybody will, you know, if you've read it, and I know a lot of people listening will have read parts of it or maybe all of it. Um, you know, the the um, one of the, the delights of it is all the untranslated Latin and you, can, you can get to feel clever or look it up, um, as, as people often do, to figure out what's going on with the, the, the side references and such like that. And certainly I know that was one of the things that I enjoyed reading it um, to begin with, right? And, and especially that... Some of the people, I mean, rereading it now, it's like some, one of the first people mentioned in, you know, a passing aside about the, the meaning of, of things is Honorius Sogostudinensis, who was actually one of the people that I worked on for my dissertation. So they're real characters. You're finding, you're, you're enjoying the, 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 the insider knowledge, if you can recognize. I mean, the, the obvious things are like William of Baskerville is obviously both William of Ockham the Franciscan who's famous for Occam's razor, not not adding um, explanations that are, are are unnecessary. And of Baskerville, clearly, obviously, is Sherlock Holmes, the Hound of the Baskervilles, and Adso's description of William of Baskerville at the outset is very clearly drawing on Sherlock Holmes. Okay, so there's some there's some stuff that people just like the like that referentiality and it's it's a delight and fun and so um i i do know one thing that people enjoy doing is well can you find all the references can you can you translate all the latin well so then somebody did right there's a this book the the key to the name of the rose including translations of all non-english phrases right so adelaide adelaide t haft jane g white and robert j white um went through and it's, it, I mean, it is, if, if you're looking for the, the sort of cliff note version of the key, this is a very nice little book because they go through and they indeed translate 
all of the the texts they give you both the latin and the english um they give you know various here it's talking about when william's figuring out um what's going on with their fingers being black and their tongues being black and it's a particular kind of syllogism and so forth it it you know it's a it's a helpful guide and they also give um a sort of it, um prosopography or of you know here, here i'll read you what they say about honoris augustinensis see whether it's whether i agree with it um benedictine philosopher and theologian also called Honorius of Autun, he joined the Irish Benedictines at Regensburg. Um, well, we do know he's at Regensburg probably because Valerie Flint did, showed all of that through the manuscripts of, of his work, but he actually um, spends time in England first, and the book that I of his that I worked on, the Sigillum Beatae Maria, the Seal of Blessed Mary, he wrote while he was in England as a student of Anselm, so not in Regensburg. He goes there later. Probably with the um, entourage of the mother of the Matilda, who's in contest with Stephen over the throne of England. And okay, see, right? You can do this. It's the, the, all of the threads are there. Anyway, I also called Honorius of Autun, true, but he wasn't in Autun. Um, an ardent defender of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist and of high moral standards for the clergy. Honorius asserted that a sacrament administered by a priest in the state of mortal sin is valid by the power of Christ. It is invalid, however, if the priest has been excommunicated. He also argued that God is the substance of all things beyond the grasp of any creature, but containing them all. Everything created is good, a term identical to substance, Whereas evil is the nothing that is opposed to substance. How appropriate. Um, God's reasoning for allowing evil in the world is essentially aesthetic. He is the supreme artist who emphasizes and makes more resplendent the good by setting evil in opposition to it. Well, I like Honorius, right? I, that, that, that sounds much more like the Middle Ages I know, that you look at God as creator and artist and the goodness is um, uh, there as an aesthetic um, reality as well as, as a, a moral reality. And Echo would have obviously known some of that, uh, although I can't find his art and beauty, so I don't remember whether he quotes Honorius, that the, the feeling of the beauty of the world that Echo is evoking is what definitely drew me to wanting to study these texts and Honorius being one of them, right? Okay, so you might you might say, well, the best way to read The Name of the Rose is to go through this guide and um, make sure you can, you, can, you can track all the references and feel satisfied at your being like an insider in the knowledge of this moment in, in, in our um, Christian history. I will take questions in the chat if you guys have any. <laughs> Seeing as I'm here by myself and talking, I can I can do this. Let's see, we got Casey and Mel. Um, Mel, you've seen the movie, haven't you? Kristen Slater's first porno. Well, yes, I'll try to get to that. 
um, tonight. Um, the movie was very dark. Well, yes, it is very dark. And watching it last, rewatching all the science, so you get nothing but those crazy haircuts, right? The monks have, the crazier the monk, the, the more sticky out his hair is. And um, I did do a little research on, on where they filmed it. And uh, it, anyway, I, we could do it with the movie. That, 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 that's one way. Um, was this the Mosaics Arc's first chair stream? Maybe second. I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean, Fat. Okay, so Casey saying, not having read the book, I can only guess the director was pushing the Dark Ages aesthetic hard. Um, I hated the porn scenes in it. Casey says, definitely added to the grotesque feel. Well, see, that's all you remember, right? So I'd say that one way one way to read the name of the rose is, is get the key and you know trace all the references and and feel like you're doing research like obviously I did as a as an undergraduate or graduate um another is to watch the movie and you get a version of the story um the movie's a lot is very thin and and echo apparently liked the movie but he's you know it's like it's not his book right the book is much there's it's a much more complicated argument than they're able to make in the movie. Although visually the movie, it, the movie is visually like the way I feel about Jackson's, excuse me, Tolkien movies. It's visually amazing. The music is great. The casting is strong. The movie of Name of the Rose is actually probably better in some ways. Although there, there are things that change in the movie that don't happen in the book. Like in the movie, um, the Inquisitor, Bernard Gui dies. It, his, his, carriage gets pushed off the, the side of the, the um, mountain that doesn't happen in in the, in the book because that's not how Bernard Gui died so he it's and I don't think it was very dramatic the way he died <laughs> in real life um, and, and interestingly Bernard Gui being one of the real life characters in the movie Albertino de Casale the the sort of weird creepy saint saintly monk, uh, Franciscan it's also a real person so the movie can do some things and one thing very specifically is that the porno scene in the kitchen with Christian Slater and the girl, right? So what then what 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 should we do? What how how should we best get into this? Well, I I I started reading. I've only I'm only about uh, 30 pages in and I realized I was already at like through the preface and the the maps and the, I'm going to read these opening pages for you and then you'll understand what it is that we're looking at. First thing you see when you open the book is a map, right? And the, I, you know, it's, this, this is the way I think Echo is thinking. He was about 46, said he started writing this book in 1978. So he had enough background to pick the most obvious models for things. And certainly when I read it as an under, undergraduate or graduate student, I knew a few things that he was talking about, but I obviously didn't know all. And I also recognize the study of history being what it is. I still don't know everything that is going to potentially be here in this book. I, I was also wondering maybe the reason that... Um, the scholarship hasn't really dealt with him that much. It's like, how would you? <laughs> it's, it's a, 
you'd have to write a whole other book about Echo's Name of the Rose to appreciate all of the things that Echo put into the Name of the Rose. So it's a it's a it's a masterpiece of of a kind, um, and it's you know not quite re like reading Finnegan's Wake, maybe more like reading Ulysses. It's 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 that dense of reference, and yet there's something there's something else going on. Okay, so I I grant grant you that absolutely everything we're going to see is going to be suddenly like eight layers. You're going to have to bear with me. Okay, so the map. Um, the first thing you see is the the labyrinthy library at the top. He says the Idificium, which means building, right? <laughs> um, and we're going to get a more uh, elaborate description of of that. But it's this this um, mainly diamond shaped um, fortress. That's an that's a blot on a, a map of monastery because it makes it look like a castle and monasteries were not castles they were monasteries they might have walls and and you know thing but the, the tallest thing in a monastery would be the church not this not church thing so it's already kind of off a little bit um in other way in other ways though my first thought was ah, he's it's it's the monastery of saint gall it's clearly um no okay it's I, I'll get to that. I put them in the wrong order. It's clearly a map of a monastery that you would recognize as a kind of model monastery, but with with a a little tweak. All right. Okay. So just think about that. Right. And he says, naturally, a manuscript. I'm not going to read absolutely the whole thing, but I need to read to you some things so that we get kind of super into this. On August 16th, 1968, and I'm sort of like going, ah, okay, I need to look up. 1968 is hardly a neutral year in a European intellectual's chronology. Um, my first thought was August 16th might be significant. It's a day after August 15th, which is, in fact, the Feast of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary. So maybe there's something like that there, quite possibly. Um but I, as far as I could tell, nothing that I would have thought necessarily important happens on August 16th. However, um, the character, the narrator character, Echo, um, is at this time in Prague. And something did happen in Prague in 1968, six days later. Soviet troops invaded that unhappy city. Okay, so... The first thing that Echo is doing is putting this story in the midst of a crisis. It's it's August 16th, 1968 is obviously when Western civilization was up in flames, or at least in France. Um, protests of the kind that we're having on campus now with students trying to, you know, anti-war students trying to take over in administration buildings and such like that. That was huge in 1968 in the United States. In Paris, in France, um, they're also, you know, student riots and 1968 is kind of a marker for this generation of scholars as the year everything changed or not so august 16th could be meaning to be something around the virgin mary not quite like a misdate or it could be that it's six days before and the six days is kind of interesting it's like things that happen in six days what happens in six days Oh yeah, creation. So we're already playing with some kind of level of symbolism right in this like opening paragraph. On August 16th, 1968, 
and yes, I do think it's all purposeful because he's a professor of semiotics and he's doing this on purpose. Okay. I, I, the narrator as echo, which is also meant to be, it's like, who's I, right? This is Umberto echo. Do we know it's a novel? He says naturally a manuscript. Um, I mean, the, 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 the kind of form of the book suggests that it's a, it's a novel rather than something else. But it, there, there is a tradition of doing things like Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe is a history by himself. Or um, Walter Scott's historical novels tend to have this fiction of it being an actual um, manuscript. Like Ivanhoe is said to, it has a, a preface by the Reverend Dr. Dry as Dust, and then he pretends that he's found this manuscript somewhere else in the Auchinleck and blah, blah, blah. So the, the, the genre has a flavor of pretense in terms of the narrator having access to documents, which we're being set up with in a real moment, 1968, six days before the Soviets invade Prague. Therefore, you're really, really primed to want to believe this. <laughs> On August 16th, 1968, I was handed a book written by a certain Abbe Vallée, Les Manuscrits, I don't speak French, so laugh at me. Le Manuscrit, laugh at me. Le Manuscrit des Dom Adson de Melk, traduit en français d'après l'édition de Dom Jean Mabillon, à la presse de, de la Baie de la Source, Paris, 1842. Okay, so the manuscript of Dom, in um, monastic terms, Lord, right? Lord Adso of Melk, um, translated into French from the edition by Don Jean Mabillon. Okay, well, Don Jean Mabillon is a real person. <laughs> there he is, warts and all. And that's literally, he's got warts if you look at the picture. <laughs> warts and all. So you are already being teased into believing that this is real because it's a manuscript of Adso of Melk. Well, and Melk's a real place. Whoops. I, I forgot. I don't remember what order my slides are in tonight. Okay. Melk's a real place. Adso is a real medieval name. That's possible. I mean, Milo is a real medieval name too. I keep seeing Milo of, you know, so-and-so being referenced in the 12th century. And I think there's one in the 8th century too. It's like Adso is a real name, although everybody will tell you um, that it also rhymes with Watson, right? So the Adso of Melk, who writes out William of Baskerville. Okay, but Adso is a real name. Melk is a real place. But even more importantly, Jean Mabillon is a real scholar. And now you're 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 sort of trapped and intrigued, right? Um, the, what Mab, uh, what Jean Mabillon is most famous for is founding the study of diplomatics or paleography, right? So Jean Mabillon. This, this this monk, right, here he is, warts and all, right, there he is, um, is, is famous for his manuscript researches in, um, in the history of monasticism, right? So you are being teased into believing that such a translation from something Jean Mabillon could have found could have existed, right? And um, and then we get the the, um, the the play off of Milk. That's the picture I was looking for, right? So and Milk's a real place. 
and we have, um, you know, that he, he reads, he, he, he's journeying up the Danube, which is where you're going to see Melk. It's there on the, the heights. Where I, I've actually been to Melk back in high school. That's the last time I saw it. And it looks just like this, right? So it's, it's this magnificent Baroque abbey now, um, but it's a very ancient monastery too. And he, uh, the narrator tells us that he makes, a, a, in a single burst of enthusiasm, a full translation of this whole, you know, French version of Adso's account um, from the edition of Jean Mabillon. Uh, and, and I didn't look this up, but I think it's I think it's probably significant. Using some of those large notebooks from the Pepeterie Joseph Gibert, in which it is so pleasant to write if you use a felt tip pen. <laughs> what? What's the joke there? I'm not sure. And as I was writing, we reached the vicinity of Melk. We're perched over a bend in the river. The handsome stift stands to this day after several restorations during the course of centuries. As the reader must have guessed, so he goes, he finds, he gets this Adso of Milk book, and he's going to Milk. As the reader must have guessed, in the monastery library, I found no trace of Adso's manuscript. There's the library. It's a very famous collection, and it's you know, typical of these great Baroque Austrian libraries. You know, you'll see this picture floating around the internet as... Why can't we have beautiful things like this anymore? Because <laughs> you're not monks. Um, that it's it's a magnificent collection, and so the narrator Echo is teasing you into believing that it really Adso's manuscript should exist, but we can't find it at Melk. Um, and then, you know, completely improbably, the traveling companion that he's with runs away with his his the original book. <laughs> so. His, his, his lover is, is my traveling companion, the person with whom I was traveling, my traveling companionship was abruptly interrupted, and the person with whom I was traveling disappeared, taking Abbe Valet's book, um, not out of spite, but because of the abrupt and untidy way in which our relationship ended. And later he's like, and I couldn't get it back because it was just too embarrassing. <laughs> so the book ran off. Um, and... The, 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 it's it's funny that on the one hand uh, there's so much effort into making you believe that Adso's book actually could have existed in an edition by Jean Mabillon even though we can't find it in the library at Melk and yet oh yeah my 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 um my traveling companion ran off with the book like what my dog ran away with my homework what are you doing here Okay, so a few months later, the narrator says he, he wants to, he's going to get some more information about um, the French book, and, he, and I still had reference to its source, exceptionally detailed and precise. And here is the title page of that source. I'm going to read the whole thing because you just got and the, the, the level of... Um, well, is it playfulness? What is it? The level of trying to get you to believe this really exists is is out, you know, out, out. So anyway, you can read this, and I'm reading it, saying, I know Mabillon wrote Vetera Analectica, right? So Vetera Analectica, si ve collectio veterum aliquot operum et apostulorum omnes generis, carminum epistolarum diplomatum epitaphorium, et cum itinere germanico ad notationibus et aliquot disquisitionibus arte de Johannes Mabillon Presbyteri ac monachi ordinus sancti benedicti e congregazione salmori. Nova editio cui assessori mabi 
Loni, Vita, et Alicot, Opuscula, Scilicet, Dissertatio, de Pano, Eucharistico, Asimo, et Fermentato, ad Eminitissimus, ad Inimitissimum Cardinalem Bonam, sub Bona, Subjungitur sub Opusculum, Eldefonsi, Hispaniensis, Episcopi, de Eodum, Argumento, et Eusebiu, Romani, et Theophilum, Gallum Epistola, de Cultu Sanctorum Ignotorum, Parisius apu levesque ad pontum centimicalis MDCC XXI cum privilegia regis. Got all that? <laughs> well, it's all there in the screen in front of you, right? That this is a collection of old stories, songs, letters, diplomatins, um, epitaphs, um, and uh, Ger uh, Germanic itinerary notes and other um you know, notations, right? By John Mabillon, priest and monk of the Order of St. Benedict in the Congregation of San Mar. That's true. And it's right there on the title page of what you just looked at. Now, it's a new edition with the life of Mabillon and other little works. Also a dissertation on the Eucharistic bread, um, leavened and unleavened um, to the Cardinal, um, adding a book, a little book of Ildefonsus of Spain, um, and uh, Eusebius of Rome um, in a letter to Theophilus of Gaul on unknown saints, on the cult of unknown saints. Now you're starting to get suspicious that he made this book up. Well, no, the book actually exists. Right? It's right there. We can even turn the pages. This is, this is a copy that is for sale. <laughs> so they're showing off the interior. You can get a sense of what this... This printing was like in um, 17, wait, okay, so, no, wait, go back. Huh. This one says, Paris, this said, Apud Levesque ad Pontum St. Michaelis. That's not the printer. That's not the printer on this, on this, this particular edition, and the date's different. Right, so that's the, he sucked you in completely because I quickly found the Vetra Analectica, the Bibliothèque Saint Genevieve, but to my great surprise, the edition I came upon differed from the description in two details. The first, the publisher, who was given here as Montalant Agrippam Pipi Augustinian, Augustinianorum Prope Pontum St. Michaelis, so um, on, the, on the river next to the bridge of St. Michael, and also the date, which was two years earlier. So, but I mean, he's, he's, Echo is doing a great job here because he's proved, he's, he's taken a, a book that itself was used to prove that certain saints didn't exist on the cult of unknown saints um, and various arguments about, you know, the, the theology and so forth with the life of Jean Mobillon um, and pretended to find a different edition from the one that actually exists, right? So, oh, I, I, he's saying, I found this one that was two years, published two years before the one that you'll find in any library, okay? Now, this is obviously the kind of joke that scholars love because particularly if you're a geeky graduate student or even if you're, you know, a geeky associate professor 40 years later, you're pretty proud of yourself for realizing what the joke is, that he is showing you by way of this fiction that he's weaving 
that we we want to be sure that these things actually happened and we do all of our think about it Mabillon is the father of diplomatics the actual scholarly science that you use to figure out things like is this real that you have to you know learn how the manuscript hands look if you go to this library at Melk and you're looking at all of those different books I mean some of the, I did I've got a lot of ways I could prep for this stream we're probably gonna have to do multiple streams so don't worry I'm just gonna you know get you in right that one of the things you'd want to know is the 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 um, manuscript hands of the books that are copied so that just as you can look at a book like this that's printed in the 17th century and I look at the I can you know throw my eyes at that and go yeah 17th century they all look like that right they all use this size typeface these guys publishing these grand compendia of medieval sources love this form factor right these these big guess what you can get them all in pdf now in google books and read them um which is a very great source because many of these early modern printed editions are the only early the only not manuscript versions we have the text they're made by people that actually could read latin well so they're you know they're good to start from and um they are i mean they are not abbreviated and clearer to read than a lot of the manuscripts and such it's it's most of the printed books from the 16th and 17th and even to the 18th centuries were old books. So, you know, just as in um, Castelia House, Vox is making leather bound reprints of books that we want to continue to be able to have. Well, that's what this is. Um, but the Veteran Electica is, is a collection of bits and pieces that he found. I mean, what's showing here is. Um, for example, that's, um, uh, I, I know you can't see it on screen and I forgot to, where did I write it down what it is? Oh, it doesn't matter. It, it's a, a, um, a poem to, I think, Louis the Pious. Um, that this kind of you know, printing it almost was made to preserve, well, to preserve the old books, right? These printed books make new copies of the old texts and Jean Mabignon was one of the important founders as a scholar. He got into some trouble as a monk because he was like chided for like, why are you doing all this scholarship? You should be a monk. Not being doing all this literary, you know, scholarly diplomatic stuff. He invents, among other you know, ways in which to test whether or not stuff is true. And in this book, which I can't say that I've read, um, I can't say, oh, well, I haven't read. Uh, I can't say, well, whatever. I, on the cult of the unknown saints, the cultus sanctorum ignotorum, um, it's also in the 18th century that we start getting the scholarship that worries about whether or not particular holy figures were real or not. Mabillon and and the um, Bolandists and the you know all these collections of great saints' lives. The Catholics actually do a lot of research in the 17th and 18th centuries to figure out what biographies of who they have point to real people so we're all we're two pages in you realize to this construction um then then the narrator goes on he says he talks to Etienne Gerson who is a real person um he wrote on philosophy he wrote on philosophy and and some others and he still can't find this book again right um 
and he started having dreams and wondering whether he was dreaming these books of as yet unwritten and so forth. If something new had not occurred, I would still be wondering where the, where the story of Adso of Milk originated. But then in 1970, in Buenos Aires, which is is triggering you to look at um, Borges, right? Because Borges was in Buenos Aires. So he's going to go to Buenos Aires and find a clue, right? Um, as I was browsing among the shelves of a little antiquarian bookseller on Corrientes, not far from the more illustrious Patio del Tango of that great street, I have not been to Buenos Aires. I don't know whether these things are real or not. I'm guessing they probably are because he's playing this sort of game. But then I'm not sure about this. I came upon the Castilian version of a little work by Milo. No, I'm not kidding. It says that Milo Temesvar on the use of mirrors in the game of chess, uh, which is clearly like to cheat, right? So I, and then I started realizing that there is a Milo haunting this particular story because apparently there's a comic artist who is <clears throat> more famous for porn um, <laughs> called Milo Minata, who has just this last year published, uh, this one's in Spanish, but I think he originally did in Italian, um, an illustrated version, a graphic novel version of the first part of The Name of the Rose. So here you go, Milo. Um, this Milo in, in, this person's real, right? If you look him up on Amazon, you'll find a lot of naked ladies in his drawings, uh, which made it helpful for that particular scene in this book. And yes, if you get this this volume of it, no, I don't have screenshots for it, but you can see her in the in the opening scene here, the girl in the in the kitchen. She's she's up there at the top. Um, that uh, this Milo Temesvar, I don't know whether it's real. I didn't track this one down. Uh, he says it's an Italian translation of the original, which now impossible to find was in Georgian. I'm like, oh, good grief! And here, to my great surprise, I read copious quotations from Adso's manuscript. Though the source was neither Vallet nor Mabillon, it was Father Athanasius Kircher. But which work? Okay, you can. I, I took you down the Mabillon rabbit hole. You can do the Kircher one. He's real. He's famous for doing these collections of science and alchemy and, and so forth, and um, is a great uh, figure in the history of science for some of his more um, elaborate descriptions of things. I didn't look him enough and I Athanasius Kircher is real. So Echo is going through and, and basically pointing you to all of the typical places you would go to find out whether or not any of this kind of thing was true. But obviously he's, he set you up. Okay. Um, and so then the rest of the rest of the, 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 the setup is, uh, well, okay. I decided, uh, you know, I decided to, to, translate in Italian a obscure neo-gothic French version of a 17th century Latin edition of a work written in Latin by a German monk, right? We are in layers of Babel here. That the 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 naturally manuscript setup is giving you to expect, um, which at which he concludes, I, you know, I don't know whether I should do this. I'm full of doubts. I don't really know why I've decided to pluck up my courage and present as if it were as if it were authentic. <laughs> the manuscript of Adso of Milk. Let us say it is an act of love. Or, if you like, a way of ridding myself of numerous persistent obsessions. Um, 
and says, I, I feel free to tell it now, and ending, ending this little opening with, for it is a tale of books, not of everyday worries, and reading it can lead us to recite with a Kempis, the great imitator, in omnibus requiem quaesivi, et nusquam inveni nisi in angulo cum libro. Um, Thomas Akempis is the great imitator of Christ, because that's what Thomas Akempis is famous for, the imitation of Christ. In omnibus requiem quaesivi, it's a reading from Ecclesiasticus, which is used in the Feast of Mary, and the um, and I never found something except in the corner of a book. Okay. I oh, Sorry, what is... <laughs> Maybe I would be helped by their translations rather than trying to do it nervously off the top of my head right here. Rather than lie to you, I'll, I'll take help. Yes, I found, I've sought tranquility in everything, but found it nowhere except in a corner with a book. But the in omnibus requiem quaesivi matters because that's actually a quotation from scripture the re the second part of it is not right okay so how are we doing still good anything guys gotta tell me in the chat whether i'm gonna pause for a second now at the top of the hour uh, is there is there any, i didn't and because i don't have kilts to like tell me in my ear what i'm not making sense about please help me do you have any questions They're stunned. I put them all to sleep. Okay, so the other, the, the next level of, of curiosity is, of course, the structure of time that Echo gives us. So he's given us this elaborate invention of finding himself in the in the manuscript, in the story. And now he's saying Anso's manuscript is divided into seven days. So it's a week, right? And it, it's very interesting. It's a week at the end of November. Now, tonight's November 30th which is the Feast of St. Andrew, which means Sunday is going to be the first Sunday of Advent because the first Sunday of Advent comes after the Feast of St. Saint Andrew. And if this happens at the end of November, the monks should be preparing for Advent. There's all sorts of, of ways in which the precision of parts of it are obscuring curiosities of other things and one is we have these seven days at the end of november it should be right before advent right but it's um set up so that you are following the story through the the, the clock of the monastic hours matins lauds prime terse sex known vespers and compline um calculated to have sunrise and sunset um in northern italy at the end of november in light and dark at, at the appropriate times, right? So a lot of it takes place at night because, of course, it's the sunsets around 4:40 p.m. He says in November. I yes, I invite you again to think about all of the construction that <coughs> we're being given here of numbers of days and the structure of that land, that layout of the monastery, and the the way the echo is bringing you into the feeling of being in this, in this time. Okay. In the beginning was the word. I, it says that right here. And the word was with God and the word was God. So that's obvious. It's the, the opening of the gospel of John. 
And so we are... We are being led to believe with Adso as narrator that this is going to be a, a meditation that makes sense for a monk, right? But it gets despairing quite quickly. This was the beginning with God and the duty of every faithful monk would be to repeat every day with chanting humility the one never changing event whose incontrovertible truth can be asserted. But we see now through a glass darkly and the truth before it is revealed to all face to face we see in fragments alas how illegible in the error of the world so we must spell out its faithful signals even when they seem obscure to us and as if amalgamated with the will holy vent on evil and now that's why it's like the the, the light lighting scheme of the movie makes makes a certain amount of sense right because well they i mean they've they've filmed it in a location that fits with the description of the abbey in the book um but they've also done it with the you know it, so much happens at night and they have to have torches and and darkness and of course the the um the calculation of the signs and the times and and so forth is going to end up in those apocalyptic readings of the different murders and deaths and the, the, we're being told that we have to look for the signs we're seeing through a glass darkly and we must spell out its faithful signals even when they seem obscure to us and as if amalgamated with will holy bent on evil it does you know people tell you what they're doing in the opening of their stories right that's effective stories always tell you exactly what's happening from the beginning and then you look back on it and you say, wait a minute, they told me that at the outset. Why didn't I believe them? Um, so Casey's asking, was the penitential character of Advent part of the plot? Not really. I, I need to reread it now and to think about it. But he so purposely says at the end of November, but he doesn't mention Christmas is coming. Was this why there was such a violent reaction to the monks having the pleasure of reading Hebrew? No, it, not in the book. It's, it's just Jorge doesn't want them reading the book. He doesn't want them reading the... The poetics he doesn't want them reading about jokes we'll get to that okay so um he get he gives you an a, a bit of a, a a backstory of exactly what's going on in 1327 um if you all are worried right now about the way people talk about pope francis just do some you know study some medieval history and you realize it's not new and of course the problem in this in the setup for the story is we have um, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, um, Louis, who is in opposition to Pope John the Twenty Second, Jacques de uh, Jacques of Cahors, um, who, in Adso's telling of things, because Adso's on the emperor's side of the story, is a, heres a wicked usurper, simoniac, and heresiarch, who's now living in Avignon, and a good part of the the drama in the book and it's it's in the movie but they don't get to like have the proper full level of Marsilius of Padua discussions about the poverty of Christ is around the battle that's going on in the early 14th century um, within the church and 
politicized by the the challenge that the emperor is giving to the Avignon Pope over whether or not the church should have property. And the this is the you know you could you could feel smart and feel like you've read the historical novel, which of course I did back when I read it in, in graduate school, um, knowing about the fact that the, within the Franciscan order there's divisions too by the early 14th century of those who are they've gotten kind of comfortable in their university life and they like being professors. <laughs> and then there's others, the spiritual Franciscans who feel like the order has lost its way. They're, they're not living according to the way St. Francis had intended. And um, one of my colleagues here in Chicago, Robert Lerner at Northwestern did a lot of research on figuring out exactly the degree to which many of these heresies existed or not. I mean, it, the problem is when you get nervous about, your own position, you can start inventing enemies that aren't there. Um, so I need to, I need to do, I'm not a 14th century specialist. So now you're sort of like off the, off the edge of things that I know for sure. And there's a degree of debate in the scholarship about some of these heretical movements, the degree to which they actually existed or not, which is why, which is why in the book, Bernard Gui is actually a very interesting character to include because we do have Gui's handbook on being an inquisitor from the early 14th century and he's talking about how tricky it is to talk to the heretics because they always answer in ways that you know they know how to not say it out loud I, I did want I did once did a, a blog post back five or six years ago about the new heretics um, you know, using these same kind of evasions and dodges to be able to not say what it is they're actually thinking. We, we, we do it, people do it now, right? They won't speak the truth, and so they'll speak obliquely. And Gui's handbook shows that, that the, the heretics have learned to do that, to speak in those uh, elusive ways, elusive, allusive ways. Um, but there's some worry, therefore, in the scholarship about how many of these heretical groups actually existed. As opposed to in the fevered, you know, fantasizing of, oh, like modern scholars making up the fact that they think white supremacy is the worst threat to the reality of our democracy or something like that. Your mileage may vary. Actually, it won't. It'll be exactly the same whenever scholars get involved with trying to figure out who's the, who's not on their side. Anyway, um, Adso as narrator gives you a little backstory on the relationship between Louis, the Bavarian, and the Franciscans, and that Louis the Bavarian um, protects the Franciscans that um, actually argue against the, the church's property. And um, he says, with is this point, I imagine that Louis saw the Franciscans, now the Pope's enemies, as his potential allies. By affirming the poverty of Christ, they were somehow strengthened the idea of the imperial theologians, namely Marsilius of Padua and John of Jandun. Marsilius is famous for his book on the Defender of the Peace for theorizing some of the, what we think of as secular arguments for government. I need to reread him. I haven't read him in a long time. And finally, not many months before the events I'm narrating, Louis came to an agreement with the defeated Frederick, descended into Italy, and was crowned in Milan. This was the situation when I, a young Benedictine novice in the Monastery of Melk, was removed from the peace of the cloister by my father, fighting in Louis' train, not least among his barons. Um, in the movie... Adso is made a Franciscan with William in the book. He's a fellow Benedictine of the, the um, Abbey. So 
he has different loyalties in the book than he does in the movie. In the movie, it's the Christian Slater's ad, so is, you know, very much attached to his master, William. In the book, Adso has more com- more con- conflict over which order he, he should he should um, follow the trust. Okay. So it in 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 the in the novel version of it, Adso is giving you a kind of outsider's vision of what William is as a Franciscan, and um, he does he says you know he he, he lives with him long enough that he sees him like a father. Um, but in fact, he's a Benedictine and not, who cares, right? Okay. So, um, we get the description of William, um, and I think I've already, I've already set him up a little bit. Um, I liked Sean Connery's version of William Baskerville. I thought he was really nicely done, and especially he's got these spectacles, right? He's got his eyeglasses, which is accurate to the to the period, right? They have um, these uh, hinged lenses that you hold up. Um, there were some very um, significant medievalists who consulted for this movie, and uh, Jean-Jacques Arnaud seems to have like listen to them because among other things it, it's it's quite fun looking at the props in the movie when William is talking to the the monk the the abbot and they're in the treasury and they're you know playing with the the toys right the, these these fancy toys you see things like the Lothar cross like the real objects they used they 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 made the props incredibly well for the movie and likewise the books that are the props uh, so that you know fun for medievalists you can be watching it not just like in charles king charles's coronation when they're carrying the gospels of saint augustine but you can catch glimpses of other actual books um and actual objects so there's there's all sorts of layers of very accurate social history in the movie which is 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 wonderful and in adso's description of william you have him being in some ways accurate to what the franciscans were like particularly that he he um was a um you know what he says yeah student of roger bacon one day i'm going to properly read roger bacon i have read roger bacon in college a little bit and a little more uh a year ago when i was teaching a course on the quadrivium um he's he's you know, I did a paper on Bacon in, in college on trying to fix his theory of species because it seemed to me that I could, you know, I was that insane then. My teacher, bless his heart, let me do it. Um, Bacon is one of these Franciscans who's very, very interested in studying the natural world. And that makes William's character to be interested in all of these wondrous machines. He says, machines are an effect of art, which is nature's ape, and they reproduce not its forms, but the operation itself. He explained to me thus the wonders, the clock, the astrolabe, and the magnet. Yes, all right? But what what Adso says after that is silly. Um, but at the beginning, I feared it was witchcraft. Well, no. Um, he might fear, fear it's um, like bad angel magic or something, but not witchcraft. He would, and, and what's interesting about the, the trope that I'm then starting to get suspicious of with Echo, right? The trope that he's playing about the fear of science in this period, please. All right, that's not 
that's not the way it happened. The Franciscans were very, very interested in natural philosophy. And in my own scholarship, I'm working right now on a late 13th century Franciscan whom William, if he were a real person, could have known from Florence, who in his descriptions of Mary uses all sorts of natural examples um, drawn from things like Aristotle to describe Mary as the most beautiful creature ever made by God. So there's plenty of evidence that we have that people in the scholars in the time are totally comfortable with the kinds of scientific studies that from the 19th century, they were said to have been afraid of, right? When the 19th century is all full of itself and thinking that they're, you know, the, 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 the peak of the peak and um, have invented all these great machines. And, oh, back in the Dark Ages, nobody ever did this stuff. No, the reason they're able to invent them in the 19th century is because they've been doing it from the 13th century all along. And some of the most significant scientists throughout the, throughout the history of science were churchmen, right? So Franciscan. So it's like, it's accurate, but not for the reasons that Echo wants you to believe in the, in the setup. Um, and we have William sort of gesturing towards my friend Occam denies that ideas exist in such a way. Um, but uh, I do not say this because we can determine the divine nature, but precisely we cannot set any limit to it. Gesturing towards, you know, William of Baskerville is not William of Occam, even though he has, some of the characteristics we associate with William of Ockham in terms of his scientific and mathematical studies. First day. In which the foot and prime, right? So what, what time, what, that's um, around 7.30, shortly before daybreak. In which the foot of the abbey is reached and William demonstrates his great acumen, acumen. Okay, so it was a beautiful morning at the end of November. During the night it had snowed, but only a little, and the earth was covered with a cool blanket no more than three fingers high. In the darkness immediately after Lodz, we heard mass in a village in the valley. Then, as the sun first appeared, we set off towards the mountains. Okay, it goes, set off towards the mountains. While we toiled up the steep path that wound around the mountain, I saw the abbey. I was amazed not by the walls that girded it on every side, similar to others to be seen in all the Christian world, but by the bulk of what I later learned was the Idificium. This was an octagonal construction that from a dis distance seemed a tetragon, a perfect form, which encompasses the, expresses the sturdiness and impregnability of the city of God, whose southern side stood on the plateau of the abbey, while the northern one seemed to grow from the steep side of the mountain, a sheer drop to which they were bound. I might say that from below at certain points, the cliff seemed to extend, reaching up toward the heavens with the rocks same color as the material, which at a certain point became keep and tower. Work of giants who had great familiarity with earth and sky. Three rows of windows proclaimed the triune rhythm of its elevation so that what was physically squared on the earth was spiritually triangular in the sky. I th that is quite lovely, right? So it's like, it's, it's square on the ground but rises up in three, so four, three, right? So it's square and triangular. As we came closer, we realized that the quadrangular form included at each of its corners a heptagonal tower, five sides of which were visible on the outside, four of the eight sides then of the greater octagon producing four minor heptagons, which from the outside appeared as pentagons. And thus anyone can see the admirable concord of so many holy numbers. 
each revealing a subtle spiritual significance. Eight, the number of perfection for every tetragon. Four, the number of the Gospels. Five, the number of the zones of the world. Seven, the number of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. In its bulk and in its form, the Idificium resembled Castel Ursino or Castel del Monte, which I was to see later in the south of the Italian peninsula. But its inaccessible position made it more awesome than those and capable of inspiring fear in the traveler who approached it gradually. And it was fortunate that, since it was a very clear winter morning, I did not first see the building as it appears on stormy days. Well, what did he see? It could be this, which apparently is in the Alps in the right region, <laughs> um, St. Michael's. Um, but notice that what I just what I said earlier about on the map, right? In the on the map and in Adso's description of the this abbey in the story, the the Idificium is the most prominent building, right? This this quad triangular in elevation, quad you know octagonal base building, right? But in an actual abbey, it would be the church that stood out, and so it's it's interesting that. In, in the name of the Rose Abbey, it's not the church, but this library that oversees it, which you should feel a little suspicious about by now, because I'm going to tell, I'm going to, I don't worry in the, in the last half hour, I'll tell you all the things to be super suspicious about. I just want to make you appreciate how many layers Echo is going through to get you to this point. Um, so it does matter what kind of model and, and this, I think this drawing is actually really good. This is from Milo Minara's um, graphic novel. And I, he's clearly using the movie as some of, uh, some of his uh, models, but his, his William Baskerville does not look like Sean Connery. He looks like more like Charlton Heston, which I thought was hilarious. But um, that you have this incredibly imposing tower against the monastery and what... Um, Adso later says is when he saw um, these other places, St. Gall, Cluny, and Fontenay, he realized that this abbey was strange, right, with the Idificium. And he realized that the Idificium um, was much older than the buildings surrounding it. Perhaps it had originated for some other purposes, and the abbey's compound had been laid out around it at a later time but in such a way that the orientation of the huge building should conform with that of the church and the churches with it, which by now you should be, you recognize that the echo is actually working. He is a professor of semiotics. He knows what he's doing with all of these signs and he's, he's tricking you. <laughs> okay. So you, you have the narrator Adso, who, you know, I mean, you would know from the movie is the Christian Slater character um, is, as it were, an unreliable narrator in the sense that he is not going to understand a lot of the things that he is encountering. And, and for that, that is difficult for him. Um, but he's also unreliable. I've realized now in reading all of this because he's trying to make you think that things mean things when they don't. And that is where I, I, I it's like, ah, this is great that, um, you know, when Adso first sees the tower, uh, he sees it, you know, the, the work of giants with great familiarity with earth and sky, right? So it's a tower of Babel for sure, 
the work of giants, the work of, of, of this ascension and so forth. Um, but he's trying to give it because he's, he's Adso, he's the, the monk. Um, doing this by myself means I talk a lot more, right? I have to, he, um, he's, Adso the character is incredibly read. So here he is, you know, talking about how, um, the ancient builders respected the rules of orientation better than Honorius Augustine and Insis or Guillaume Durand. Uh, William Durandus wrote, and both Honorius and William wrote on the meaning of the liturgy. So I think the play in here is like the degree to which the architecture is laid out to fit with the liturgy. But um, Adso, Adso points you to this kind of thing all the time. So of course the, the, the tower must have this symbolism of holy numbers. Oh, but it's not even really originally built for the monastery it's something else it's lurking it's this and you can see in in Minata's, um illustration here even more so than in the movie it doesn't fit right it's this counterweight to what the monastery should be about um and Adso kind of hints at hints at this and it's like Perhaps it had originated for some other purposes and the Abbey's compound had been laid out around it at a later time, but in such a way that the orientation of the huge building should conform with that of the church and the churches with it. For architecture, among all the arts, is the one that most boldly tries to reproduce in its rhythm the order of the universe, which the ancients called cosmos, that is to say, ornate, since it is like a great animal on whom there shine the perfection and the proportion of all its members. And praised be our creator, who, as the scriptures say, has decreed all things in number, weight, and measure. All right, well, I've, I've skipped a little bit of what happens in, in the moment here, but I just get you to be thinking about the tower and the way Adso is trying to, as narrator, make you think that there's some co literally cosmic significance to it in the cosmos sense, that it's somehow figured to show you something true about creation and that all of his structure in the six days and the time and the meaning of the numbers and such is going is trying to show you the truth of the creator decreeing all things in number weight and measure right um in this echo and this is where it's like seeing the map that echo has for the the book the book right the the opening map and you see the way the the other monastery buildings are laid out it echoes quite purposefully one of the most famous monastic documents we have which is this plan of the monastery of saint gall which adso mentions right he saw he had seen saint gall we are meant to think of and i'll this is the this is the actual manuscript here's a schema of it um we are meant to think of this monastery as having some meaningful structure, right? So that there's the church, which in the Monastery of St. Gall is more clearly in the center of the whole thing and the, the, the conceptual center of it, not just the physical center. And that it's surrounded by the buildings that enable the monks to live there and work there and pray there and, and, and praise God there. And that this holiness is built into the structure of what it means to be a monk. And of course, I know, I know when I first read this, that that was the primary thing that I was left with. It's like, okay, some murders happen, but I read a lot of murder mysteries and, you know, Brother Cadfell, right? Brother Cadfell in 
Ellis Peters murder mysteries is always still well he he seems to get permission to go outside of the cloister quite a lot but because he's a herbalist right so he has to collect plants um that I think I think I didn't realize what Echo was up to because I was so enchanted with the feel that he was giving of being in a monastery for a week that you know they have the the the, the chapters are di divided according to day and they're submarked by the times of the monastic orarium and I was unfamiliar with it I, I was you know enough unfamiliar with it when I was in in college or graduate school that it just it felt wonderful and enchanting to even be thinking about a world that was organized according to these designs right and and that, that as as in the key with um Honorius saying that Honorius wrote about God as the supreme artist everything created good the term identical to the substance so things that exist are good and have substance and evil is the nothing that is opposed to substance now that's in the key so it's not in what echo was doing but it does it gives you a flavor of the kind of monastic literature i'm familiar with from this period from earlier periods where what monks tended to see was at least as they write about it as people like honorius wrote about it beauty that's not what this story is about is it or is it Wait, what? Okay, so as they're as they're going to, whoops. Okay, let me go back to the. I'll imagine they're showing up at the at the monastery, right? And in the movie, because they don't go through this whole opening scene, which is actually quite important and clever. Um, in the movie, the they're just welcomed into the gate and. William shows off his, his acumen by knowing where to tell Adso to go to the bathroom, to the toilet, because he saw a monk that went in some distress and came out and he was happier. And, oh, that's how observant um, William is. In, in the book, in fact, what we have is um, they meet uh, the cellarer, one of the officers of the monastery, um, and William deduces quite easily that they're looking for the abbot's horse um, because... Uh, he saw um, some footprints, hoof prints that suggested a particular size and shape of horse. And um, he figured out what name the horse would have. It would be Brunellus. And um, even, you know, could describe to the cellarer what the horse would look like, right? So he says, you know, if you're hunting for Brunellus, the horse can only be where I've said, go that way, right? And the seller hesitating, looked at William, then at the path, and finally asked, Brunellus, how did you know? Come, come, William said. It's obvious you are hunting for Brunellus. He's in his Sherlock Holmes, you know, mode here. The abbot's favorite horse, 15 hands, the fastest in your stables, with a dark colt, a full tail, small round hoofs, but a very steady gait. Small head, sharp eyes, sharp ears, big eyes. He went to the right, as I said, but you should hurry in any case. Okay. And then Adso, of course, wants to know, well, how did you figure this out? How did you know, William, to look for the signs? Okay. How does William know where the horse went? 
I could add so, my master said. During our whole journey, I have been teaching you to recognize the evidence through which the world speaks to us like a great book. Alanis de Insulis, that's Alan of Lille. I also worked on his commentary on the Song of Songs in praise of Mary. All of these men are famous for other texts as well, but I know them because of their Marian treatises, which may be relevant here. Alanis de Insulis said that Omnis mundi creatura, quasi liber et pictura, nobis est in speculum. Every creature of the world as a book and a picture is for us in a mirror. Quasi liber et pictura, nobis est in speculum. As if, as, as if a book and a picture is for us as in a mirror. And he was thinking of the endless array of symbols with which God through his creatures speaks to us of the eternal life. But the universe is even more talkative than Alanis thought, and it speaks to us, it speaks not only of the ultimate things, which it does always in an obscure fashion, but also closer things. And then it speaks quite clearly. I'm almost embarrassed to repeat to you what you should know. Um, and they go through the proof, and um, he's saying, he figured out, he knew he knew the horse's name would be Brunellus because that's the, like, example horse in every logic problem. And he knew it would be, um, it would look a particular way because that's the way Isidore describes the beauty of a horse. So even if the horse didn't look like that, that's what the monks would see. And so we're saying William in his Sherlock Holmes character is proving his understanding of both the way people project images onto the world and see what they, 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 they you know, want to see and the way in which the creatures speak to us of their reality, right? This was my master's way. He not only knew how to read the great book of nature, but also knew the way monks read the books of scripture and how they thought through them. A gift that, as we shall see, was to prove useful to him in the days to come. His explanation, moreover, seemed to me at that point so obvious that my humiliation at not having discovered it by myself was surpassed only by my pride at now being a sharer in it right? As you should be now, because you now have to get to share in the breakdown of what's happened in the first, you know, 26 pages of this book and to see how many layers of sign and structure and meaning and history and scholarship Echo is bringing you into so that you could take the same kind of pleasure in being shown the, 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 the solution to the puzzle as Adso does in being shown how to read why the monks were looking for Brunellus. Um, and I was almost congratulating myself on my insight, right? You feel this like I figured it out too, once you get the explanation. Such is the power of the truth that like good, it is its own propagator. And praise be the holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ for this splendid, splendid revelation I was granted. And that's as far as I got in the reread. And so the rest of this is off the top of my head in memory. And I'm realizing it's a giant joke. Now, the, you are given to believe that all of these things are going to be figured out by William because he's the Sherlock Holmes character and that Adso as his Watson character is going to narrate for you how all of these mysteries are resolved. And I mean, if you've seen the movie, you know that you know they, the monks start seeing apocalyptic signs in all of the things that happen. But at the end, in fact, 
and I think this is not this is not emphasized in the movie. In the end, in fact, none of the signs actually meant anything, right? That they go they go through the various murders, and they first in pig's blood, and then in no first falling, and then in the blood, and then in the water, and then the heavens, and then the all of these you know signs of the coming apocalypse have nothing to do with why the murders or deaths have actually happened because it's all because Gorge, the librarian who's named after Mr. Labyrinth, um, has a book that he doesn't want the monks reading and they're passing it between each other and everyone, each, each time everyone of them reads the book, he dies. And he dies with getting the poison on his, on his fingers and on his tongue, so it blackens his fingers, he blackens his tongue. Which signs are going to actually be meaningful in figuring out what was what was going on in in the monastery. Well, okay, and then this is this is where I realized I got the headache thinking about how I was going to unpack all of this because as when these things come to you and you suddenly see the pattern, um, you are now in the presence of it's it's kind of a revelation, but also the the um, labyrinthine twisties that, that, that you've been put through. You are going to, if you read the rest of the book, which you may or may not after you watch, if you listen to me talk about it right now, um, you read the rest of the book, it's going to go on at this level of density, right? And there's all sorts of, there's wonderful, wonderful things that um, Echo did. Uh, you know, famously, for example, when uh, Adso first sees the carvings on the door of the church at, at the abbey he's uh, echo is very clearly describing the portal at Moisac. I again i i looked up all these references and stuff and i can show you the pictures later but it, it's there it's Moisac. um that you know th th he's referencing throughout actual scholars that we know um the movie plays off of this referential delight a great deal as i've said with the objects that they, they have in the props and and so forth and um, you want to believe that you're in a, a story that is actually going to have like a core meaning, right? There is some point to this whole mystery that we've been playing out, right? That they're going to resolve the argument over the poverty of Christ, potentially, that the Franciscans are having with the, the um, papal delegates. Well, no. Um, that you will have some truth revealed by Bernard Gouy and his Inquisition. Well, no. I mean, we, we learned something about what Salvatore and Remigius were up to, but well, no, right? The, 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 as, as William says, when he's, they've convinced themselves that all of these signs of the apocalypse are actually going to matter, but William at the end says there was no pattern. There actually wasn't anything that was pointing to any truth or reality throughout all of it. It was all a series of, of different kinds of happenstances and accidents. And you start wondering, it's like, what is this book that I'm reading? And the, the one thing that someone asked me in Social Galactic saying, I hope you explain 
what's the title mean, right? Why is this book called The Name of the Rose? Well, at the end, we have Adso um, being, you know, some, somewhat uh, ha, ha I found it. this new edition has a has an, a postscript that I didn't know about. Uh, so I'll have to read that. Um, yes, the, the, at the end, it just says there's too much confusion here. There's 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 mystery and what we end up with at the end. Yes, is um, Adso complaining. It's cold in the descriptorium. My thumb aches. I leave this manuscript. I do not know for whom. I no longer know what it is about. Stat rosa pristina nomine, nomina nuda tenemus. I no longer know what this is about. It ends exactly the way I felt Foucault's pendulum ended, and I was pissed off at that, right? And then I realized he wrote the same book twice or maybe more times, right? I no longer know what it's about. Stat Rosa Pristina Nomine Nomina Nude Tenemus. It's translated variously, but to assume it's like yesterday's rose, um, you know, the name of yesterday's nose, the name of Pristina yesterday's rose remains. We hold naked names, bare names. We hold nothing but names. The name persists. There's a name, the rose. There's a name of the rose. And that's all we have, a name, a word, right? And the, and the giant joke throughout all of this is nominalism, right? That William, William of Ockham is famous as a nominalist saying that, and that's what William of Baskerville had said at the beginning. My, my friend Ockham denies that ideas exist, right? I say to you, God wishes them to be, certainly they are already in his mind, even if my friend Ockham from Ockham denies that ideas exist in such a way. What William of Ockham denied was the existence of universals. He denied the existence of idea, I mean, the best way he's thinking about it is platonic ideas, but in the, in the logical, grammatical description of things, the the universals are the existence of something, like there's rows, is there such a thing that exists of all roses. And what what Adso ends up with at the end of the story is the only thing there is is the name. Nothing else. Well, Ken is saying the journey is a hundred thousand percent better, a thousand times better than the destination with this book. Well, yes. But on the other hand, it's like it's what has he done okay so i just like i i it took me two hours nearly to read 20 pages to get you to the level of the like you get drawn in you think you're going to find that horse you think that the creatures are going to point you to something meaningful you think that all of this scholarship and learning and and you know mabillon and his manuscripts is all going to mean something for you in the end and we have by the end, a story where the narrator is telling you it's just it's an empty name. It's an empty word. So let's think about this. 
for a moment. It's November with no Advent. It's monks, which they, they in, well, in the movie, they do the hours. They don't seem to do mass very often. I need to read the book again and see whether they actually go to mass ever. They, he mentioned that they went to mass, but it's not. The pattern that William thinks he can find in the deaths means nothing, right? The, the apocalyptic signs are ridiculous and, and accidental. And it's all revolving around a book, which if you've seen the movie, and I do want I do want to actually do another stream, I think, on the humor problem, the humor question, because there is I've used the the conversation they have in the scriptorium about the Aristotle and the and the poetics and the comedy, right? This is in an authorized community, you all are, you know, quite primed to be caring about Aristotle's rhetoric and know that he, you know, he wrote the poetics on tragedy and we there should be a book on comedy but we don't have it and in the name of the rose the thing that is poisoning and killing all of the monks is Yorge's the Greek book in Greek that Yorge has poisoned because he is so afraid of what will happen if the monks laugh and you know can make jokes it, when they read it, it's like, you know, they're making little marginalia and, and the kind of marginalia we know that are definitely in those manuscripts of grotesques and, and so forth. Those are typically in prayer books, by the way. And um, that this is a book about how these two cultures come into conflict between Jorge's fear of comedy and the Franciscan's embrace of it, this embrace of comedy. And by various accidents, by the end, the library burns down and there's no library. Likewise, in the book, not in the movie, in the movie, the girl that Adso has the porno scene with uh, escapes. In the book, she dies. She burns too. So the library burns, the girl burns, and Adso ends up in this... There, all we have are the empty names. I'm just going to land on this, sit here for a minute. None of it meant anything. And you are given to believe because this is such a well-crafted book that philosophically it's the nothing that is the truth, right? That we, we set it up, we set it up at the beginning that he's not sure the, the manuscript, when he finds the manuscript, it, does, it doesn't really exist. It's a tale of books, it's an act of love, or it's, if you will, a way of ridding myself of numerous persistent obsessions, which seems to be the obsession with believing there is such a thing as the truth because that's what Adso starts with. He starts off sort of delighted that he's going to find truth and meaning and the structure of the cosmos in this library that we know from the movie that burns down and that is, you know, over the course of solving the mystery that isn't the mystery, 
they learn things like the main the the library has this labyrinthine structure and of course i did enjoy having read the borges finding out that oh there's this labyrinth library and yes it's very interesting because the key to the rooms and the the um cataloging system is that it maps the world so there's this world map in it um it's also very interesting that it is in fact and i didn't know this until i read this one um, article on it that um adelaide haft wrote the same one who wrote one of the one of the co-authors on this key wrote this book this article on the the mazes studies in iconography and she points out that, in fact, the library is modeled on an actual labyrinth, although that labyrinth is lost, which is fascinating. Um, it was at Reims, and it, it's interesting because it has the same uh, square, octagonal tower structure. Um, but, of course, the labyrinth at Reims had something in the center. And the library, in the movie, they made a sort of Escher print later Hogwarts style staircase between all the different in the in the in the in the actual map in the book it's I think it's a single floor and they just have to go in the maze as a flat thing um, there's nothing in the center in the book's library labyrinth it's just a an empty core. Okay, so what has what do I think now the echo has done? Now I I I would say that the thing that I was most impressed with, it's the porn scene. Um and what I've hinted throughout Echo Like, I was paying attention to at about the time that I read this book was people like Honorius Augustinensis writing the Seal of Blessed Mary which was a commentary on the Song of Songs. And Alan of Leo, uh, Alanis de Lincilis, also writing a commentary on the Song of Songs in praise of the Virgin Mary. And therefore, of course, when I got, and I was also reading this, you know, Christian Slater is a few years younger than me, so he wasn't that much younger than, I wasn't that much older than him when I saw the movie, right? And Okay, yeah, it's a, the porno scene is quite porno. I watched that last night. Um, in uh, the movie, I don't remember what he says, right? In the book, what he says is quite significant. Okay, so Adso is in, in the kitchen, which is in the, the ground level of the library, which is the, the three structure, the three tier structure of the library is quite interesting. The kitchen, there's the bodily functions on the bottom, the scriptorium, you can say the, the mental level, and then the hidden heavenly. Um, books level is at the top, right? So it's a tripart type structure from the, the body to the mind to the soul, which is quite clever and, 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 and nice. Um, and Adso has come across this girl. I, I won't show you her. I, I, was showing, I was showing some pictures of the Turkish baths in class yesterday and some of the men look nervous. And I'm like, okay, I, I won't do this to you guys. You can, you can just look at, the, look at the labyrinth and listen to what's happening in the basement of that tower. Words pressed into the caverns of my memory rose to the dumb surface of my lips and I forgot that they had served in scripture 
or on the page in the pages of the saints to express quite different, more radiant realities. But was there truly a difference between the delights of which the saints had spoken and those that my agitated spirit was feeling at the moment? At that moment, the watchful sense of difference was annihilated in me. And thus, this, it seems to me, is precisely the sign of rapture in the abysses of identity. Suddenly, the girl appeared to me as the black but comely virgin of whom the Song of Songs speaks. She wore a threadbare little dress of rough cloth that opened in a fairly immodest fashion over her bosom, and around her neck was a necklace made of little colored stones, very commonplace, I believe. But her head rose proudly on a neck as white as an ivory tower. Her eyes were clear as the pools of Hezbon. Her nose was as the Tower of Lebanon, her hair like purple. Yes, her tresses seemed to me like a flock of goats, her teeth like flocks of sheep coming up from their bath, all in pairs, so that none preceded its companion. And I could not help murmuring, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that lie along the side of Mount Gilead. Thy lips are as a thread of scarlet. Thy temples are like a piece of pomegranate. Thy neck is like the Tower of David, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers. And I asked myself, frightened and rapt, who was she who rose before me like the dawn? Beautiful as the moon, radiant as the sun, Terilibus et Clostrotum Achies Ordinata. Um, carries on. and they're naked, and she kissed me with the kisses of her mouth. And her loves were more delicious than wine, and her ointments had a goodly fragrance, and her neck was beautiful among pearls, and her cheeks among earrings. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, behold, thou art fair. Thine eyes are as doves, I said, and let me see thy face, let me hear thy voice, for thy voice is harmonious, and thy face enchanting. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck, thy lips drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue. The smell of thy breath is as of apples. Thy two breasts are clusters of grapes. Thy palate a heady wine that goes straight to my love and flows over my lips and teeth. A fountain sealed, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, myrrh and, oles, myrrh and aloes. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Who was she? Who was she who rose like the dawn, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, terrible as an army with banners? Oh, it's quite steamy. I, I should, I should, I should temper this. I should temper this. Yes, temper this with a, with, with a, with a little reading from scripture. Clearly that was a bit much. We'll calm down now, okay? Oh dear. How beautiful art thou, my love, how beautiful art thou. Thy eyes are dove's eyes besides what is hid within. Thy hair is as a flock of goats which come up from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth as flocks of sheep that are shorn which come up from the washing all with twins and there is none barren among them. Thy lips are as a scarlet lace, and thy speech sweet. Thy cheeks are as a piece of pomegranate besides that which lieth hid inside, hid within. 
Thy neck is as the Tower of David, which is built with bulwarks. A thousand bucklers hang on it, all the armor of valiant men. Thy two breasts are like twin, two young roes that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Till the day break and the shadows retire, I will go to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense. Thou art all fairer, O my love, and there is not a spot in thee. Thou art beautiful, O my love, sweet and comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army set in array. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have made me flee away. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appears from Galad. Thy teeth as a flock of sheep which come up from the washing, all with twins, and there is none barren among them. Thy cheeks are as the bark of a pomegranate beside what is hidden within them. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines, the young maidens without number. One is my dove. My perfect one is but one. She is the only one of her mother, the chosen of her that bore her. The daughters saw her and declared her most blessed, the queens and concubines, and they praised her. Who is she that cometh forth as the morning rising, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army set in array? Oh, dear. Right. So that, of course, is what I paid attention to. One, it's a love scene that I was young enough to really be enchanted by all of that. <clears throat> it's very beautiful. And two, Adso is quoting the Song of Songs when he's making love to the girl that he finds in the kitchen, who has no name, right? So something kind of tricky just happened. And Echo, it's interesting, there's something in the Wikipedia entry saying Echo was a, a thing about how his father was a foundling, ECO from the, the baby falling from the heavens or something. Um, Echo echoing, I hear his, he's, his name echoes for me in English. He's constantly an echo of saying, there's nothing in the center here, right? And now I am curious, I, hadn't, I haven't read all the way through this, so what does, he, what does he do with his postscript? Since the publication, The Name of the Rose, I have received a number of letters from readers who want to know the meaning of the final Latin hexameter and why this hexameter inspired the book's title. I answer that the verse is from De Contemptu Mundi, on the contempt of the world, by Bernard de Morlay, the 12th century Benedictine, whose poem is a variation on the Ubisunt theme, um, where are all the, those who are lost, right? But to the usual topos, the great of yesteryear, the once famous cities, the lovely princesses, everything disappears into the void. Bernard adds that all these departed things leave only, or at least pure names, behind them. I remember that Abelard used the example of the sentence Nulla Rosa Est to demonstrate how language can speak of both the non-existent and the destroyed. And having said this, I leave the reader to arrive at his own conclusions. Well, okay, so I arrive at my own conclusions. This is a massive joke, Dr. Echo. If he is a Dr. Echo, I'm not sure whether his thesis was a master's. He's got a lot of honorary degrees, right? He gives us a labyrinth for which there is no center. He gives us a girl whom Adso makes love to, reciting the Song of Songs, who has no name. And he leaves you with a monastery obsessed with signs and meaning and pointing to the creatures of creation where, for which there is no pattern. And he leaves you to believe singular echo in all of his cleverness 
and all of his postmodern skepticism that he, the great semiotician, has figured out that the names are empty labels. And there is no rose, and the name of the rose is a joke. Yeah, well, they're better labyrinths, and they're better ways to answer this mystery. So he used the labyrinth at Rams, which did have some figures in the center, right? But the, there is a much more famous labyrinth, and it shows up in our credits for Mosaic Arc every time you see it. But now you'll see why it's there. This is the labyrinth that shot, which is interesting because it does have this flower image at the center, but that's not the rose that I'm going to show you, right? So this, and what's interesting about these labyrinths, and we are using them in Draco Alchemicus as the model for what's going to happen in Act 3, which it's projecting we're projecting how we're going to answer all of this sign theory and simulated like we can do this and answer satan and his tricks right that the, the there were that there's the number of these labyrinths the one at charge is the is the best preserved one and it seems that in fact in the middle ages when they were made in the 12th and 13th centuries there were dances on them the clear that they, they would do the kind of i think it's kind of the the clergy would do them the young men would do them holding their hands up and kind of like, so it's kind of like a Greek dance of a certain, and they do them for um, different festivals and such. And you are dancing in the church, right? These are in the pavement of the church. Echo makes his outside in this library, which is not even built as part of the church. And it's probably the work of giants and it's, you know, doesn't fit in the symbolism and it's lurking and behind all of these things. I mean, he's, he's wanting you to believe that the problem is the monks wouldn't laugh. The monks did do these dances and they were filled with joy because this labyrinth actually has a, a, another referent in its symbolism, which is the window that casts its light onto that labyrinth at Chartres. And of course, at least that's a rose. Now, it's interesting, this west window at Chartres has as its center of the rose, Christ. So, in one sense, the name of the rose is uh, Dominus Jesus Christus, um, because he is, he is seated there in the center. But there's also constantly, always, and I said I was fascinated by, I'm reading all of this, I'm in graduate school, I'm telling my professors that I want to, you know, carry on this work that I've started on these commentaries on, yes, the Song of Songs, that see in the bride of the Song of Songs, Mary. And I know that in modern context, it's really, really difficult for a lot of people to see Mary as intellectually significant. Maybe she seems devotionally significant. Maybe she seems incidental to the theological reality of recognizing Christ as Lord. But in the 12th and 13th centuries, when these pavements were made, when these rose windows were made, when the greatest works of medieval Christian architecture and literature were crafted in meditation on the beauty of creation, in meditation on the signs that our creator gives to us in all of his creatures to point to 
the love that he has for us as his creatures, to point to the hope that we have in our salvation, to point to the light that came into the world. That's the rose. Echo was born a Catholic, but he died apparently an atheist. If he can't see the rose, it's not because it wasn't there. Now, what's interesting about this is Echo is Italian and therefore certainly knew Dante. <laughs> Everybody knows Dante, right? And if you know Dante and you've read the Paradiso, you guys can get leather-bound editions of this one from, from unauthorized, right? You know that what's at the center of everything, <laughs> for goodness sake, is a rose, right? And how can an Italian in semiotics write a medieval story set in 1327, which is, you know, six, year, six years after Dante died, give you a novel about philosophy and claim that there's no meaning in the rose. For goodness sake. Really? Right? And and the, there's a wonderful, you know, it's like the, the, the rose at the, at the center of the Paradiso is this complicated one. From the outside, it's first um, Virgil comes, uh, sorry, Dante, Virgil. Dante comes in and he sees it from the outside and then it kind of flips out. And so you see both the ranks of the, this is why it's this double image in, in this. So you see the ranks of the saints all focused on the center and then it flowers out and you see that that rose in fact encompasses everything. Um, and that at one level, and the, these are from the Yates Thompson manuscript is very famous of showing you, you first, Dante first sees that in the center of this great rose is, of course, Mary. And what Don, what he's he's encouraged to look upon um, by Bernard of Clairvaux, who's who's pointing it's his guide by this time in the contemplative ascent. Um, he's telling him. Um, now, at this point in seeing the rose, now look at that face, which resembles Christ the most, for only in its radiance will you be made ready to look at Christ. Now, you remember what, what, what Echo did at the beginning with when Adso starts writing, and he says, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes, Christ, right? This is the incarnational promise of Christmas, that, that God enters into his creation. And that's why the, these windows are so important because they are showing the, the ones with Mary in the center are showing the light entering into the world. The light comes into the world. This is an Advent story. This is a November story and there's nothing of Advent in it. This is a despairing book. I think it should be burned by the time I finished with this exercise because you realize this book, if you're a Christian, is laughing at you. It's what I said at the beginning of the stream. What would you do if you as a scholar or a librarian realized that you had a book in your collection that made a joke of your 
truth. That's what Yorge, he's so worried about, oh, the monks might laugh at God. Echo has, of course, written a book laughing at, oh, aren't you silly to think that there was something in that rose? This was the beginning with God, and the duty of every faithful monk would be to repeat every day with chanting humility the one never-changing event whose incontrovertible truth can be asserted. But we see now through a glass darkly, and the truth before it is revealed to all face-to-face -face we see in fragments, alas, how illegible, in the error of the world. So we must spell out its faithful signals, even when they seem obscure to us and as if amalgamated with a will wholly bent on evil. He may end in despair that there's no you know, the names and that's all we have. He started in despair. He started with this. We are supposed to believe in the incarnation. We should chant this all the time, but actually we can't really see. And there's no reality and there's no rose. Now, I don't know what's going on for Echo, but that's what he had to write. Because what ends, what Dante ends with is not just the rose that is most like the face of Christ. But the rose. This is the final canto of the Paradiso. He's now gazing on the mystery of the rose, the divinity, and he sees the persons of the trinity as light now even in the things i do recall my words have no more strength than does a babe wetting its tongue still at its mother's breast which is interesting it's like the incarnational desire for the baby not that within the living light there was more than a sole aspect of the divine which always is what it had always been Yet as I learned to see more and the power of vision grew in me, that single aspect as I changed seemed to me to change itself. Within its depthless clarity of substance, I saw the great light shine into three circles in three clear colors bound in one same space. The first seemed to reflect the next like rainbow on rainbow, and the third was like a flame equally breathed forth by the other two. How my weak words fall short of my conception, which is itself so far from what I saw, that weak is too much too weak a word to use. O light eternal fixed in self alone, known only to yourself and knowing self, you love and glow knowing and being known. That circling which as I conceived it shone in you as your own first reflected light, when I had looked deep into it a while, seemed in itself and its own self-color to be depicted with man's very image. My eyes were totally absorbed in it. As a geometer who tries so hard to square the circle, but cannot discover, think as he may, the principle involved, so did I strive with this new mystery. I yearned to know how could our image fit into that circle, how could it conform. But my own wings could not take me so high, then a great flash of understanding struck my mind, and suddenly its wish was granted. At this point, power failed high fantasy. But like a wheel in perfect balance turning, I felt my will and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. 
Now, I would very much rather read that story from 14th century Italy now than this story set in 14th century Italy, which claims there's no rose. I have some more thoughts about what we do with comedy, but I'm, I resent the joke. And I recognize that when I read Foucault's Pendulum, I was able to pick up on it because I wasn't so enchanted by the idea of my own knowledge, <laughs> ironically, right? That when I read The Name of the Rose, I, was, I wanted to be part of the ADSO secret, right? I wanted to be there with William having things explained to me. I wanted to believe that, you know, it was cool to be able to read it with all this key. Echo was a postmodernist. And he says that, I mean, he's talking about in the end, right? Constructing the reader, pot, preterition, saying what you don't say, the mask. But, oh, it's like, okay, so I, I maybe need to read this and I'll, I'll revisit it right now. But right now, what I realized is the book is about a book that makes you laugh at the truth. That's it. It is that book. It makes you laugh at being hoodwinked by the premise that we can actually see see truth in the signs. Any questions? <laughs> so, right, fat is kind of like, I'm surprised to hear this about Echo. I haven't read him, but I assumed he wasn't a postmodern nihilist. He is! Right. And that's what's that's what's interesting about it with with Foucault's Pendulum. I knew that and I got to the end of it and I said, wait a minute, this is nonsense. Right. Um, but with um, the name of the rose, he's so exquisite at getting you inside the desire and then he rips it away. Right. Right at the end. And and he says, no, actually, there was no rose. The movie, it was interesting, the movie is much more romantic and the girl is the rose and she doesn't burn, right? In the book, the girl burns, she has no name, all of the love that Adso expresses for her through the Song of Songs has no referent, right? It's not an accurate representation of the Middle Ages whatsoever. It's, it's just as um, uh, undermining of the truth of the joy as things like Mark Twain um, at Walter Scott's a little different because he's Anglican and but but this desire to see the you know the nasty Catholic inquisitor and you know the reference to the you know the, the heretics were right because they're actually singing of do penance and the church is all rich and stuff alas my dear friends Echo is not Dante. Yes, and the, the case he's saying, the church is mean, it doesn't want me to have laugh or have sexual joy. That is what Echo does. And ironically, in order to do that, he has to pretend that the greatest Italian poet never existed. I'm wondering if Dante is in here. Right? I don't... I, I, I will now look him up. Um, Dante does not appear in the key. So you end up on another Alighieri. Nope. 
There's no Dante in Echo's book. Sorry. <laughs> and what's ironic about this is one of the reasons I'm thinking so hard about a lot of these things is I'm reading yet another of these Marian treatises written by a Florentine in Dante's lifetime, someone who Dante probably very likely knew in person because Dante is known to have gone to listen to disputations at the Franciscan convent of Santa Croce. And the author whose work I'm working on right now, Servus Sanctus of Faenza, wrote one of these magnificent Mariales in which he explicitly sees Mary and all the creatures. And he's, I, I, maybe I'll tell you, maybe I'll tell you about actually the joy of medieval Christianity in, in another stream. Um, Servus Sanctus does exactly what William of Baskerville says we can do, which is study the philosophers and find traces of the creator in all of the creatures. And he says, Servus Sanctus says, and these these Mary is the pattern, the exemplar for all these creatures, showing us the joy of, of the creator. Um, Servus Sanctus is delightful in a lot of other ways. He has wonderful things saying grammarians should never stop trying to explain even the most basic parts of their um, art because everybody, you know, it's like you need to do b basic elementary education as well as high Aristotelian philosophy. And the other thing delightful about Servus Sanctus is he's probably one of the Franciscans that Dante learned his philosophical, um, uh, got his philosophical training from, including reading Aristotle for the creatures, because Servus Sanctus, the Franciscan active in Santa Croce in medieval, in 13th century Florence, cites Aristotle constantly. Other of his brothers did as well. The Franciscans are reading Aristotle for sure. That is what William Baskerville was doing. But of the Franciscans that we know, that inspired Dante, they can see the rose. Happy Advent. <laughs> I, I, the thing, I will keep reading this. I do want to go through some about the, the theories of humor and stuff, but recognize the, the book itself is a joke on itself. Alas. Okay. Any questions? I know there's a bit of, there's always a bit of delay. So I don't know whether if you're still asking questions or is sitting there going, oh dear. Yes. Nope. Um, Echo was a postmodernist. As a semiotician, undermining the sense of the joy in finding the signs are meaningful. I really need kilts at this point. <laughs> okay, so I do think I'll continue with thinking a little more about Echo, but beware, you guys. Modernity is, and postmodernity, while they enjoy the layering of signification, and many of them, in fact, all those guys that I listed at the beginning, people like Bart, Bart is actually one of the postmodernists who drew on. Henri de Lubac's Four Senses of Scripture to create his sense of polysemy and then undercut it. What's fascinating about these European medievalist turned postmodernists is they, 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 it's like they wanted, I think what Echo, you know, Echo wants the rose. He wants it to be there, but he can't let himself see it. I pray for him that maybe 
he did not die an atheist, but I fear from what I've read about him, he did. And that, my friends, is not the truth of our joy. So. We look out over the mountains and we see the joy of the world. And I, I had this, you know, it's like, what am I going to do with this book now? I'm going to burn it. Am I going to do, I'm going to read it. In the movie, William is there. He's trying to save all of these books. And I will tell you, I couldn't get a screenshot of this that he sees it, but watch the movie and I'll prove that I just, one of the props that they found was a book that I actually spent some time studying. These are all digitized now, so you can see them in the, not, I want to go see it for real, but it's in, it's in Madrid. Um, and when they make these prop books, they use pretty pictures, but they don't necessarily put them next to each other in the way they do. But this one was very interesting because they used the acrostic page from this opening, right? Not the Alpha and Omega page of the Cairo, but they use the acrostic page, which is the name of the scribe saying, you know, pray for me, right? And this peacock, right? You can see in the opening of it, this is a copy of Gregory the Great's Morale and Job that's made in Spain in the late um, 10th century. Um, it's one of the earliest and most beautiful Mozarabic books that we have. So this gesture, uh, you know, honoring Jorge Borgos in the, in the movie, because they also have a Beatus, they have a Beatus apocalypse in the movie, but they also use this Gregory the Great Morale and Job. And what's interesting is, is in this manuscript, the scribe describes himself and the effort that he went to, to make this beautiful book. So it's an appropriate prop to be having there as one of the books that, that William saves. But when William, when Gregory the Great read Morale and Job, he actually saw the hope of our salvation, not the despair of the nothingness and the trial that we're put into by Satan. So take heart and be hopeful and recognize that the name of the rose is our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining me.